Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. Welcome to this episode of the Reform Journal podcast. I'm Steve Matinee-Vanderwell coming to you from Pella, Iowa. And our guest today is Reggie Smith, the Director of Diversity for the Christian Reformed Church in North America, coming to us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So welcome, Reggie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad and honored. Reggie, I feel like our paths have glanced off each other, but I can't really say I know you really to any degree. Could you just start by telling us a little about yourself, maybe your background, but also what it means to be Director of Diversity for the Christian Reformed Church? Yeah, I I grew up in Chicago, on the Chicago West Side. Grew up in the African-American Baptist Church tradition for a good part of my early life, and then I went to, went to college in a small Northeast Missouri school. I was going to be a lawyer and come back and start a law clinic in my neighborhood of Lawndale. And the Lord messed that up. So instead of doing tort law, I got mosaic law. And for some reason, I ended up at Calvin Seminary and took my first church. It was in Patterson, New Jersey. And then I came back to Grand Rapids where I pastored a church, merged church, white church, Dutch church in the Southwest side of Grand Rapids and pastored there for 20 years. And then came to first the interim director for the office of race relations. And then that turned into my appointment a few months later as the director of race relations and social justice. And so I did that for four years. And then in February, 2020, ended up as the director of diversity. And that's pretty much that I spend most of my time working with ethnic diaspora churches and leaders, helping them to navigate the denominational waters and helping them to have churches that thrive. And also that leaders who are a part, not just the peripheral, but the mainstream of my denomination because the growing edge of the church is those kinds of churches, black and brown people. Indeed. Again, I'm not an expert on that, but so much of what I read says the the future of the North American church is people of color and immigrants. And being a pastor for 20 years in Grand Rapids in a Christian Reformed church and being African-American, that's not a demographic profile I encounter often. Just, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but humorous and or painful experiences of people saying, really, are you sure you are who you say you are? (laughs) Can you explain to us the five points of Calvinism before I believe you are who you are? (laughs) Most of them don't even know it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Five points of Calvinism. When I first came to my church, uh, I moved from uh, Patterson, New Jersey to Grand Rapids. And I brought a friend with me as I'm making this transition to become the pastor of Roosevelt Park Christian Reform. And 
he's about the same size as me, a little darker. And we want to get into the church, but the custodian, who is a dear man who's gone home to be with the Lord, was a custodian. Uh, he was very protective about what was happening and going around in the church. And uh, so my friend and I were knocking on the door, and he comes to the door and kind of stands there and says, and he's got a deep Dutch brogue. And he sticks his head out a little bit and says, hey, hey, what did you guys want? And one thing we didn't know, he was hard of hearing. And we said, well, we want to see what the church looks like. And for some reason, he got that twisted to say that the pastor wasn't there. And he said, the pastor's not here. And my friend looked at me and I looked at him and I said, I got to describe what I had on. I had my, a baseball hat turned backwards, had pink sunglasses, I had holy jeans, and I had a white t-shirt. And I took off my pink shirt, my, my pink sunglasses and said, I'm the new pastor. And I just saw him turn whiter than he was already was. And it was, it just came a really just funny story that I tell Sometimes you get the guess who's coming to dinner, even for churches. I bet. I bet. Reggie, just again, to get to know you a little bit better, could you just maybe talk a minute or two about, I don't want to say, heroes, mentors. I see a MLK poster and a Chicago Bears poster behind you, but who shaped you? Who inspires you? I have to several people. I'd say number one, it was my mother who took us to church practically every Sunday. And I was involved in church pretty much from sunrise to sunset. And growing up in the church, I, I, that was my life. And so I, I knew that it was my mother in terms of her persistence of taking seven kids to church on the bus and doing that every Sunday. I would say a second person is a woman by the name of Barbara Clayton, who was the director of religious education at Londell Christian Reformed Church way back in the mid-1970s. And I stumbled upon uh, Londell when I followed my brother because this church had a multi-purpose gym, which was in the 1970s, unheard of. And so I liked playing basketball and my brother didn't like me following him. So I followed anyway and discovered they had a gym with basketball hoops. Oh, this is good. And the woman who was in head of the youth programs there, African-American woman, just drew all those kids in because at the time, I didn't know that this church was formerly the Christian Reformed Church's outreach to the Jews 30 years earlier and decided to stay there because, which they could have left due to the white flight, but they decided to stay and said they were going to try to minister to the now new immigrant, which was African-Americans coming from the South, which was my parents, part of the great migration from Mississippi. And Miss Clayton just really showed us that church could be fun and church could be interactive. And she was just, she drove us to all kinds of church basketball tournaments in a suburban that had holes in the floor. And none of the kids ever slipped out through those holes in those many years. And I would say the last person is Jim Wolf, who is now the pastor there. He's been there for 40 years. And he was the one who encouraged me to check out seminary and, and to think about the ministry. And one of the guys who really took a vow of stability 
that I thought was just very influential on me, having this white guy, this white family living in Lawndale for now over 40 years. And that is something that is quite rare. And so those are just a few of the people who are my heroes and mentors throughout the years. Okay. That's helpful and beautiful, actually, some of those stories you tell there. So Reggie, to state the obvious, so phrases like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, they bounce around our world and we see them in social media and seem to get people stirred up and hostile. Could you just talk a little bit about what you understand them to mean? But then also, I, I can't help but believe in your position, you encounter people for who those firms are just conversation starters. They're just red flag stoppers. They're red flags of sort of, nope, if you're going to go there, I, I can't. And how you navigate those waters and how you might try to break through that, hey, if, if you're going to talk that way, I, I got nothing to say to you. So Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, right. what are they? And how do you talk about them in a way that might build bridges rather than walls? One of the things I try to do is talk personally about what that means, especially in terms of critical race theory. And I, and I see that as how did racist policies get embedded? And all I have to do is look at my parents who came from a little town in Northeast Mississippi my mom grew up that she could not attend the white school. And why couldn't she attend the white school? It was by law she couldn't attend. Why couldn't my, my father drink out of a white fountain? The water's the same. But by law in Mississippi, you could not. He could not drink from a white fountain. That was law. So basically, critical race theory is saying we recognize that racism got embedded through laws and policies, and you can't just wish that away. You can't just get crazy about that and call it something else. Basically, critical race theory says these are things that are part of our history. We can't just wish them away, and they do have an impact. It's like the water that a fish swims in, the fish doesn't know that it's water. And it becomes the invisible force that dictates a lot of our lives and shows up in things like mass incarceration, housing policies. When I grew up in Chicago, there were laws, redlining, that my father couldn't get a loan to buy a house. And those laws were set up not only by the city of Chicago, but by the federal government that says banks and other lending institutions would not lend to my father because they didn't lend to people in Lawndale. It was redlined. That didn't just happen because somebody personally hated people or personally wanted to get at people. That was a cross-the-board legal policy. And that has repercussions. That, that does something to people. When you take away the opportunity to make wealth just like everybody else, but you can't. And I always like to point people back to that my grandmother was a slave who came from Georgia to Mississippi. 
and just two years before that, we can all read the Constitution, and it says that slaves were worth three-fifths of a person. It's in the Constitution. There's no whitewashing it. It's there. Did that not have an impact on how that affected Black people's lives? You bet it did. Critical race theory is simply saying we look back at history and policies and laws, and they have an enormous effect on the lives of people, not only in the present, but way into the future. And so they're just, critical race theory is just saying, recognize that. Black lives came out of that because of what happened in Ferguson. That when Michael Brown was shot in 2014, there was something that was going on under the surface about the police department in Ferguson, Missouri. And instead of just saying, oh, it just happens all the time, and we throw up our hands and we wring our hands and say, that's just something that just happened there. When in reality, through a report through the Department of Justice that said that policemen were taking Black people and making money off of them through small fines and fees that had been going on for Ferguson for years. That didn't just happen because there was a personal vendetta. That happened through policy. And, and I think that when we begin to demonize, we take these phrases and we demonize them, and we want to put the worst face possible on them because if we can do that, then we can change the narrative. We can change the story. And so you, instead of just recognizing history, we're now turning history into a weapon. And I think that's where, for a lot of people, they want to turn these kinds of things into weapons. And when you weaponize, when you weaponize sin, it not just affects the people who are affected by it, but also affects the person who does it. It says something about the person, maybe you're the smaller person. Maybe it's not the person who's being affected by it. I heard a wonderful phrase from the movie, uh, A Hidden Place, which is about a German pastor who conscientiously objects with Hitler and wouldn't bow to the Nazis and says, he says it's better to be the one who is inflicted by evil than the one who's doing evil. Yeah, yeah. And as a segue here, now this is probably wishful thinking on my part, but I always think something like critical race theory should find a home in people that have some reformed sensibilities, that it seems to me one of the strengths of a reformed tradition has been to say that sin isn't just in my heart or in your heart. Sin is like you've been using the word in policies, it's in institutions, it's in culture, it's in the water that we, the little fish, are swimming in the aquarium. Right. And I I just hear so often, racism won't end until everybody's heart has changed or the world, everybody has come to meet the Lord Jesus. And obviously I'm, I'm for everybody meeting the Lord Jesus, but the, the problem feels bigger and it is bigger 
than just changing individual lives. And, and that the other side, we haven't just seen sin in, in institutions. We've seen those as places where we try to bring justice and dare I even say sanctification right. or something like that and say we can yeah. use policies as well as changed hearts and changing culture and building institutions that are less racist than they used to be. And I, I don't know if maybe that doesn't help in the real world, but it just feels like that should, rather than cause a reaction, it should make us as reformed people, hey, this like critical race theory is saying racism is in our stories. It's in our history. It's not just in my heart. And the reason it's in my heart is because it's in our stories. I don't know. I, maybe there's a question in there somewhere. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I would constantly think that reform people who are supposed to be continuously reforming according to the word of God, I think very often have gone a different way in which we decided that we're going to be team red and team blue. And because politics is a part of life and a part of sin, it's part of fallenness, but what does it mean for us to move beyond just personalization to say, I am my brother's keeper? I need to be concerned about that if it doesn't just affect me, why do I reduce my life to just my own zip code and not think about the other zip codes in which there's not shalom and justice and people's lives who can also benefit? The move towards what we call, it's about me, myself, and I. It's just really selfish and not really reformed, not even Christian. Now, I like to think about it. If Jesus would have just been selfish and say, you know what, you human beings, Y'all on your own. I've done my three years. I'm going back to heaven. I'm, I'm going to outsource this to y'all. You figure it out. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that. He says, I bring a new person, the comforter, to be with us, to walk with us, to do the hard work, because when we do the hard work, what we do is we own it. We own that we are responsible for not just our own personal lives, but that we are responsible for the kind of life that we reflect and model that says we are more concerned about just me, but really about we. And I, I, I think that we make the gospel not very winsome when we make selfishness the main thing or our value, or we make safety our value. And I think when you make those two things your most important values, I think you never get it. You will never achieve that because you don't have a vision that's bigger than yourself. And, and what I love about being reformed is we're always telling other beggars where to get bread. We're not trying to hoard it. We're not trying to hide it because we know that when a community does well, everybody does well. And, and that we are in the business of about legacy building, not about just day trading for our own particular thing. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful.
So here's a, a really odd question, but so I don't really pay much attention to the British Royals and typically I don't have much sympathy for them. You can't help but be caught up in this whole Princess Harry, Meghan Markle thing. And so I right. guess I just saw a snippet of it, but so he was asked in some interview, is the Royal family racist? Yeah. And I, so for the first time in my life, I had sympathy for a Royal because he says, no, of course they are. And, but of course, if he said, yes, they are, then that's Royals are racist. So how, this is a weird thing. Reggie, help me as a white person answer that question. Am I racist? Of course I'm racist. I swim in this right. water. I know that mm -hmm. I have reactions. I have impressions that as much as I try to pull out of my background and my history, they're still there. And so right. what do you hear? Man, if I could do that, I should be president of the United States. <laughs> well, that's a possibility. I think, Steve, it's people like like William. And I watched that interview with Harry and, and Megan. And now even today, uh, the black soccer players yeah. who were called awful racist things, Facebook had to take a thousand racist tweets off and suspend people's account because they blame these black football players, soccer players, for losing a soccer game. Now, I, I know that soccer is fanatical in, in, in England, but but... I think your question was answered right there and in saying that if these if people believe that character assassination of these soccer players and from Will's brother in which Harry, who is now married to a biracial woman, now with a biracial baby, if it brings up the worst in us. And especially, I'm talking in terms of, of white people, because for white people, the worst thing is to be called is not a good person. Am I not a good person? And if we look at that in terms of reform theology, ain't nobody good. Nobody. No, not one. And one of the first things in which we mention in terms of even the Heidelberg Catechism is, Total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean we're partially good. It just means we ain't good. And we have a tendency, just as what Cain did, is to hide our flaws, hide our imperfections, try to manage our reputations. And we don't want to look bad in other people's eyes. I get that. But at the same time, we lie to ourselves and say that what we're going to try to do is protect it and make that number one, as opposed to saying, I own up to my imperfections. I own up to, I'm not perfect. I own up to, I fall short. That's not an indictment. It's rather an honest assessment that I fall short. And guess what? You're part of a great group of people who are doing the exact same thing, who are trying to live life imperfectively and say, there's still more work that I can do in my own life. So saying that you're racist doesn't mean that you're not redeemable. And I think for a lot of white people, they see that I'm unredeemable. No, 
that's not what's being said here. It is saying that we have issues that we need to work through. Just as with people need a therapist to work through issues because they can't actually see it or want to confront it. But actually, when we confront difficult things, hard things, it actually becomes the first step in terms of making our lives being transformed. Because none of us can live this life without people coming along and saying to us, you really need to work on that. But you don't have to do that alone. And you don't do that without other people who love you. Okay. And that's a good segue. We talked earlier about how you try to communicate with people who maybe just Black Lives Matter or something is a red flag, a conversation stopper. I I would guess the people, most people that are going to listen to this are not those people, but they are probably white people who want to say, Reggie, I want to help. What advice do you have for such people? What's the best that we can do or to say, hey, we, we need to be more than just, like I said, just against racism. We need to be working against it rather than just being neutral in the whole. I, I think for a lot of us, the greatest change that we can ever make is the people whom we disagree about these very issues. The hardest people to talk to are, are our own relatives about this issue. And why is that? We know why. Because it's volatile. And these are people who know us. These are people who love us. And yet at the same time, we see their flaws and their fallacies clearly around the dinner table, in the backyard, in the narthex of the church, on the street, at weddings. We know that there are people in our families who think differently. We probably all got people who are Trump supporters. We probably got people who are Bernie Sanders supporters. What do you do at Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Everybody loves Thanksgiving. And you're going to get that uncle or that aunt that's not thinking the same way that you are. What do you do? Most of the times we stay silent. We seek to keep the peace. But I wonder if we were to own, to say, I'm willing to undergo some discomfort in order to change a mind, in order to move or nudge the needle a little bit closer to possibly some common ground. I think that is the most significant thing that people can do today even more than trying to change a law. How do you change a mind? How do you change a heart about people who are in close proximity to you right now? To me, that's the brave new world. And if we start to make some movement towards that, I I think that is the most significant work that we could ever do. And we can do that right now. The question is, do we have the courage to do it? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it it feels like rather than that, we're just getting more and more separated. I feel like the church through COVID 
just becomes redder and bluer and that yep. those that were that helped make churches a, a multi-faceted place have all now left from one side and migrated to the other and vice versa and stuff. Hey, but let's wrap up with this. There's reason I talk about these kind of things and it, it's easy to get pessimistic. Obviously, Reggie, you, you keep going on and I, I wonder where you find hope, where do you say, I, I sense the spirit is blowing here. I see mustard seeds sprouting here in the struggle, especially the Christian struggle against racism. Yeah, I think my work as a pastor has been really helpful in this, in, in the sense of how do I help people to work through loss? Helping people to work through loss is... I think one of the most impactful things that we do is how do we help people to move away from the grave and start living again? I think a lot of us, we would like to regain the nostalgia of a world that used to be, and yet we are confronted with the reality of the world that is right now. And what gives me hope is that those sprouts come from the very people who signify that change also become the people who spring hope into loss. And so it's with a Farsi and Dutch church in Ontario that's trying to find a third way to be church together. It's second and third generation Koreans who now find themselves in a Hispanic neighborhood in Southern California and now those Koreans are reaching out to those Hispanics who now are the majority and trying to find a third way. It, it, it is those First Nation pastors who were working during COVID-19 and dealing with not only Christian burials and funerals, but also people who are attached to their native religions and trying to navigate in both of those worlds to bring the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet try to find some common ground in the native religion. Those are the things that give me hope because I believe that's where the Holy Spirit is hanging out. The Holy Spirit is always hanging out in the places we think are hard, that are tough, but that's where the flowers bloom the best is in those kind of places and among those kind of churches and among those kinds of leaders who are not just going to wring their hands, who are, are not just going to uh, appeal to their base, but rather to say, I want to own what the new frontier is and I want to go where the spirit is. And I don't have to have it all figured out. I just have to take one step at a time and just believe and pay attention to what the Lord shows me and say, as the old book says, that's very good. All right. Hey, Reggie, that is hopeful. And I'm, I guess I'm encouraged that in your, just even as you share that, obviously you're aware of these little kind of under the radar places where, like you say, sprouts are springing up, the spirits blowing and people are doing that hard work. And 
we don't hear about them enough. We hear about the places, uh, loggerheads and hopelessness and division and anger. So thanks for a little drop of hope for us as well. And thank you for this time, Reggie. And I just want to say thanks for your work and thanks for the time and the blessings. And may your, your work continue to flourish and find all kinds of places where sprouts are springing. Thank you very much, Steve. And thank you for the opportunity just to have a conversation together about some really hopeful stuff that's happening right under our noses. Okay. Thanks, Reggie. Thanks to you, our listeners. This is the Reform Journal podcast. And uh, we thank Reggie Smith, the Director of Diversity for the Christian Reformed Church, for spending time with us. And we thank you for listening. May the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Share this podcast. And until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you.